You, my dear, are a mint for tuning in. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, beautiful. Happy You're Welcome Wednesday from beautiful Mexico, where I hope that you are following along on Instagram and Instagram stories while Jeremy and I are so blessed to be on this month-long adventure together south of the border and sharing inspiration with you and some education and some how-tos on travel and style and working remotely and behind the scenes of finally setting aside time to write my style book, which you know is something that I have struggled to make time for for quite a while. And it's been really beautiful to be able to set aside this time and this intention. So I so enjoy sharing this with y'all on Instagram. And uh, thank you for every comment, every DM, and just building the relationship together here. Since we cannot do that right here on the podcast, we can do it over on Instagram. So speaking of podcasts, today I want to talk about anxiety and depression because my one of my most downloaded podcasts of almost a year now of doing this show was my second episode ever, which is on anxiety. And I did another one, which has anxiety in the title. That's one of our top 10 downloaded posts. And I read a book recently, not once, not twice, but three times. Who reads a book three times in a row? Uh, I never have, but there's a first time for everything. And this book is a New York Times bestseller. It is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. This was a book that had been on my radar. It had been in my uh, Amazon wish list of books to potentially get. And then a listener or a follower actually sent me the book, which was so incredibly sweet. I will say in general, I'm not a gifts person. Please don't, by and large, send me things. I would much prefer getting a review to this uh, podcast or a sweet voice memo from you um, because I'm a words of affirmation person. But uh, this was one of the rare times when someone sent me something that actually was just spot on. I picked up the book and like Essentialism that we did an episode on maybe it was a couple months ago now, I realized swiftly that I couldn't underline because I was just going to want to underline the whole book. So I read through the book, and then I reread the book and started underlining. And then I basically, in essence, ended up reading it a third time to put together today's podcast and what are going to be the next two weeks of podcasts. Because I thought so much of myself and you as I read this. I am so aware that... We struggle with depression and anxiety, and maybe it doesn't feel clinical for you. Maybe it doesn't feel full-blown, but I would feel like everyone in my life struggles with these things now and then to varying degrees, feeling like there's a sense of happiness or peacefulness that we wish was a little bit more there. It just feels a little bit elusive. And as I read, the numbers were just staggering. The percentages of us that struggle with this, the percentages that are uh, taking medication to handle these things and the newness of that in culture and how this is global. And the book is, it's so practical and it's so captivating. It is rather overwhelming because there's just so, there's so much information where you're like, man, what do I do with this? Like this 
you're pointing out something so true and I don't know how to change it. I'm not sure what to do with it. But with such a broad topic, there is really this very clear through line, which is the causes are disconnection and the answers are reconnection. And he makes this very compelling case that these symptoms are not or these states are not coming from our heads, that we have been told a story that the issue is SSRIs. The issue has been our serotonin levels and our brain chemistry, and we can use medication to change this brain chemistry, et cetera. Now, I will tell you that pretty much he says, not pretty much, he very clearly gives bucket loads of evidence for the fact that that is not true. And that it is a marketing lie that we have been told by the pharmaceutical industry. And it is pretty shocking how flimsy the evidence actually is. The story for, well, how the heck did we get here? How did we have doctors and scientists saying that this was true? It's pretty wild. But I want to say that some people may get very defensive even just hearing me mention that, you know, it is such a personal thing that I would never read this and then just go preach to someone that what they have been told by doctors and believed for years is not true. I would highly encourage you, whether this is you or whether this applies to any person in your life, if you know any person that has struggled with depression and anxiety, and I'm going to guess you know quite a few of them, this is such a pervasive topic that you guys know I don't push a lot. I'm not like, here's the this, this sweater that you have to buy and here's the face cream that you have to have. This isn't necessarily a sexy book where you're like, oh, this is such a fun, fun read. It's, But it is inspiring. I would be like, yeah, I think I might tell you to go buy this book because it's just so applicable. One of the things that was so convicting to me is that the author himself wanted the opposite answer to be true. He has taken antidepressant medication for, I think, 13 years. He's in his early 40s. He has struggled with depression since he was a teenager. And he sets out as a journalist to want to prove that this is true. He gives plenty of examples of how he has been the journalist, reporting on the fact that this is factually true and patiently explaining to the public at large why there's so much scientific evidence and that this is true. He wants it to be the answer because we want to be told that what we've done is right. We don't want to be made a fool like, oh, that thing you've believed for the last 20 years, that's a lie. Like we are very resistant to that. And also medication, he admits, is a much easier answer to say, I could just take a pill and this would all be better. Of course, we want that to be the answer for anything that we can get in life. But what he finds is so compelling and shocking and well-researched. Um, And the fact that he admits how often he wrestles. And it's a three-year journey that it takes him to write this book when he's like, I found this information out and for months I railed against it. (laughs) I sort of, you know, walked around my life being like, oh, this can't be true. Like there's got to be another way. And that guy's probably a crock. And ultimately, the answer that he comes to is that the way we get past depression and anxiety, the way, get past is probably the wrong word, the way that we heal the way that we readjust our lives so that this is no longer such a prevalent part of our reality is all of us together. It's about connection. And 
so often the answers that we are given are more so go work on this on your own. Go to therapy on your own. Visit a doctor on your own. Take a pill on your own. But what I found so compelling was that his answers were really often, we've all got to get together and work on this. Like this is an us problem. This is a culture shift. This isn't you have a problem that I don't have. This is that thing that you're responding to. It might be more heightened for you because of your personality or your circumstance. But girl, I get that. I'm, I'm struggling with that too. And so I felt like, well, I have an us in this tribe, in, in you as a listener, in all of us over on Instagram. And I felt a little overwhelmed reading this book, but I thought, well, if I don't just start here with our little tribe, then what's the point in reading the book? If everybody who reads the book just feels overwhelmed and keeps it to themselves, and I am a rare percentage of readers that actually has some sort of tribe to share this with, I thought, all right, well, this is my start. This is my doing my part. So he gives us seven to nine causes of depression and anxiety and seven or nine anecdotes. And three of those, to me, really felt applicable to what we do here. So the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about the biggest issues that I see in my work and my world that I find apply to most of us. And today, we're starting off with what he calls a lack of meaningful values or the presence of meaningful values. The lack of leads us into depression and the presence of leads us into more connection. So the opposite of meaningful values are what he calls junk values. Junk values are if I buy more, I have more, if I make more, if I have more than this other person, if I'm doing better than this other person, if I weigh less, if I'm a smaller size, if I weigh less than this person, if I'm a smaller size than this person, if I'm successful, noticed, celebrated, admired, if I'm more successful than this next person, it's what we want to do and have and how we look. And we know this is bad. Like, we know it doesn't make us happy. That's not a revelation today. So many things that I find that I teach are not an aha moment of, no one's ever said that to me before. It's just a 3% deeper insight. It's a three-degree shift to being more convicted or compelled or having more insight and understanding. And that's what I want to invite us to have a conversation on today. So let me read what he shares about the lack of meaningful values. Literally opening up my book here with all of its tabs and all of its highlights because I'm just nerding out to the max. So I'm just going to give you some snippets throughout these chapters to paint the picture of what I mean. They studied a group of a few hundred people detailed over time, and they had them lay out their goals for the future and then figure out which of them were extrinsic goals. An extrinsic goal is getting a promotion or a bigger apartment or an intrinsic goal. Intrinsic is being a better friend or a more loving son or a better piano player. They found the people who achieved their extrinsic goals didn't experience any increase in day-to-day happiness. None. Those who achieved their intrinsic goals did become significantly happier and less depressed and anxious. 22 different studies have found that the more materialistic and extrinsically motivated you become, the more depressed and more anxious you will be. These have been carried out in Britain, Denmark, Germany, India, South Korea, Russia, Romania, Australia, and Canada. 
that to me is so convicting because how many things am I working on in my life that are an extrinsic goal or part of it is? I mean, we want we want a beautiful home, right? We want to get promoted. We want to get to 10,000 Instagram followers. We want to get to $50,000 in our savings account. Like there's so many things. If I said to you, oh, stop being so materialistic, you'd be like, I, I'm not materialistic. Like that's not the way that we identify ourselves. But when you really slow down and think about this, I at least have to be honest, there are for sure things in my life that fall into this category, even though I would not say that I'm someone who has junk values. There's a lot of things that are a hybrid of these. When I think about writing my style book right now, it is an intrinsic goal to heal women, to do work that is meaningful, to have an impact. But there are also extrinsic goals, like like wanting to have written a book or, you know, the the increased platform that comes with that. Like now the reason that I want that platform is because, you know, if you go on the Today Show or if you have a New York Times bestseller, those things mean that your work has more impact. And that means that I'm reaching more women with a message I truly believe is going to help them. But it's also really hard to fully separate out that there isn't any part of those things in which like I was a little girl who grew up watching the Today Show and wanting to be Katie Couric when I grew up. So yes, is it a partially an extrinsic value that I dream of being on the Today Show someday? Like, you guys, I started to get a little choked up when I said that. Like, man, I didn't even realize <laughs> that I quite felt that way. But yeah, that will be a pinch me moment when that happens. But to what extent is that a success metric versus a quality of life metric. It's it's both. It's not purely so that I can go around bragging to people I was on the Today Show. How often am I going to tell people that, you know? It, 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 but it's probably partially this feels successful and it's partially intrinsic of, gosh, when I was a little girl, I just, oh my gosh, I can't believe how choked up I'm getting. Gosh, when I was a little girl, I just didn't watch that thinking. Maybe one day I'll be interviewed on that show because I wrote a book that's really helping people, you know? So it's both. My heart, I know in that example, there's a lot of intrinsic. But I felt so convicted in this book to slow down and notice what's the little bit that is extrinsic? Because it's not as simple as, well, you're someone who's materialistic. You're someone who has junk values. I know that's not true of me and I don't think it's true for you. But can we say we don't ever feel a little bit sad a little bit lacking when we see someone else doing something on Instagram. I, I just know anecdotally from hearing from you and from my friends and myself, like that's just not true. It's legit something we struggle with. So there's got to be elements of that intrinsic value, uh, extrinsic values in there. So they found that there are four key reasons junk values make us feel so bad. Number one, the more materialistic you become, it's proven the shorter relationships will be. So if you value people for how they impress people, then it's easy to see how happy you'll be to dump them if someone more impressive comes along. And also, if you're interested in the surface of another person, it's easy to see why you'll be less rewarding to be around and they'll be more likely to dump you too. So whether that's in our romantic relationships or our friendships, what is it that really matters to us in the people we are investing in? Number two, highly materialistic people have significantly fewer flow states. He said, imagine if when Tim was playing the piano every day, he kept thinking, 
Am I the best piano player in Illinois? Illinois? <laughs> Illinois does have an S on the end, guys, but it's silent, okay? In case anybody didn't tell you that. <laughs> Are people going to applaud this performance? Am I going to get paid for this? How much? If you are doing something not for itself, but to achieve an effect, you can't relax into the pleasure of the moment. Well, gosh darn it, now I feel really convicted as well. How often am I in flow doing something? I feel in flow. I'm creating something for Instagram. I'm creating this podcast episode for you. I'm writing the book and I'm in my zone of genius. I love it. I'm, you know, I'm just flowing along. But is there 10% of my brain that's thinking, is this good enough? Is this, are people going to like this? I wonder how this is going to land. Is this, you know, is this going to be one of our lower episodes? Or what if, you know, what if somebody writes a negative review about this book? Or what if a, you know, what if an agent doesn't like it? I mean, yeah, I'm sure that's in there. There's just no way that I am confident to tell you that my brain is clean, clear, and confident enough that I never have those extrinsic values of wondering how something's going to be received. Well, now these states that I I would say are my flow states when I'm just running, I realize if I am wondering and judging, that's taking away from some of my happiness in that. All right. Well, again, I feel pretty convicted. I mean, I thought I had pretty great values in the world, you know, but gosh, that is some some junk value that's gunking up my true just joy in doing work that I love and believe that I'm confident in the world. So I've got some, I, I can start to notice that. I can start to be more aware and vigilant of my thoughts. I can call that out when that happens and, and have a little chat with myself. Like, girl, why are we thinking about that? What would it be like to release that? How would we go about doing that? Number three, even if you're the richest person in the world, how long will that last? Materialism leaves you constantly vulnerable to a world beyond your control. Gosh, those two sentences were powerful to me. I mean, if you, if we are placing emphasis on being thin, being beautiful, the, the salary that we're commanding, the size of our business, how many people liked, how many people reviewed, like all of those things. And again, I don't know anyone of all the enlightened women that I admire. I don't know anyone that could just say, I am not at all swayed by those things. I'm sure they are out there. Um, And they are maybe some of the enlightened spiritual teachers, you know, maybe the Katie Byrons of the world. I don't know. Does Gabby Bernstein not, not care about those things? I would imagine she still struggles with it. Like, even if we have achieved something that we're proud of, if the value is really in that, it leaves us vulnerable to what if it gets taken away? What if you have an illness and you can't move your body and you gain all of this weight? Or no matter what you're doing, you're just gaining all of this weight. As a stylist, that is very convicting to me to realize, yeah, that would really challenge how I feel about my beauty. I can say I have grown much more confident in my beauty and in my skin and in my body in the last nine years of being a personal stylist and style expert. But if if there was a horrible accident, if, you know, I don't want to even mention all these things, but something really happened to my face, to my body, um, yeah, I would realize I had valued that and it was something that could be taken away. So is there, there's got to be then a little part of me that knows this is somewhat out of my control, you know, and I don't always feel safe if I'm really valuing that. And number four, when you become obsessed with materialism and status, 
that slice gets bigger. The bigger one slice gets, the smaller the other slices have to get. So if you come fixated on getting stuff or superior status, the parts of the pie that care about tending to your relationships or finding meaning or making the world better have to shrink to make way. Now, I felt very convicted of this in February. I was in my my fifth month of just running really hard in the business. And I was just aware that there is always this narrative, as much as I've grown in my perspective to my business, there is still a narrative of, let me just get through this and then I will. And again, not to be morbid, but it just hit me, you know, when I'm not calling someone in my family back or making the time to have a phone call or a FaceTime with my family because I'm in a busy launch. If something were to happen all of a sudden, and that was a person I I couldn't hear from anymore, would I be like, that felt like the wrong priority? You know, would I wish that I could have done that differently? Now, we can't always live in fear and just do every day as, you know, the adage, like live every day as if it was your last. Well, Of course, we would live life differently if every single day was our last. You know, we would just be hanging out with our people all day and spending all our money and eating all the cake, you know. So we can't go to that extreme of it. But it did just make me realize I, as my focus is on my business, you know, I was spending a lot of extra time on nights and weekends replying to DMs because I was trying to help potential students make a decision about what they wanted to do. And just I really wanted to be proud of myself that I had leaned in as much as I could. I helped as many people as I could because I knew I was shifting into a new season. I was shifting over to the book. I was traveling. We're working on some other things in our business. And I really do love helping entrepreneurs. And I just I wanted to give as much as I could. But that means, yeah, those nights and weekends hours, that made my work slice bigger. And that made my friends and family slice smaller. Now, I'm not saying that's never going to happen, but it just, it it convicts me to say, what do I actually want those slices to be? And let me pay attention to when they start to, you know, kind of get out of whack. So where do these junk values come from? And, you know, we're all at different places in the spectrum. So what kinds of things affect that and how important we make this in our life? Well, they did an experiment of four to five-year-olds and they divided them into two groups. And the first group was shown no commercials. And the second group was shown two commercials for a particular toy. And then they offered these little kids a choice. They said, you can either play with this little boy over here who has the toy from the commercials, but we have to warn you, he's not a nice boy. He's mean. Or you can play with the boy who doesn't have the toy, but who's really nice. If they had seen the commercial for the toy, the kids mostly chose to play with the boy with the toy. And if they had not seen the commercial, they mostly chose to play with the nice boy who had no toys. In other words, the advertisements led them to choose inferior human connection over a superior human connection because they'd been primed to think that a lump of plastic is what really matters. He gives this phrase lump of plastic, he says that a few times in here, and gosh, that really got to me. I was just like, what, what is a, a facial primer? What it was, you know, a facial serum? It's a bottle of goop. What is that dress that I really want? It's a few pieces of fabric sewn together. What is that toy that a kid wants? It's a lump of plastic. 
That just really reframed for me how many of the things in our life, if we saw them through another lens, we would just be like, why on earth do you want this thing so bad? And he points out that two commercials, just two, did that. Whereas today, the average person sees more advertising messages than that in a average morning. So I read that and I talked to Jeremy about like, where all, there was some statistic in the book, I want to say it's something like we see on average 5,000 marketing impressions or something. It was an astronomical number that I couldn't even believe was true. And I, Jeremy and I talked about like, where all do we see advertising? And so I immediately was like, I tasked my assistant to see, can we unsubscribe me from catalogs? I just realized like, you know what? I get catalogs from West Elm and Anthropology and they come in my mailbox and I throw them away. I don't bring them upstairs. But is there a moment of, am I sure I don't want anything from CB2? Am I sure I don't need anything else from the house? Do I just want to take a peek at what's in this Bowdoin catalog? Uh, I already am on almost no sales emails for things like those brands. I'm on emails from teachers that are not selling junk values. You know, if someone is is teaching you about therapy or wellness or running a business, like those things add value to your life and and they are in the connection area of this book. But what about the things that actually don't bring the value to your life? Once my house is decorated, I don't need to stay on all of those mailing lists telling me that there's more sales on stuff from West Elm and CB2. Like I've I, I'm I'm good. I'm done. I tend to mute commercials. Jeremy hates commercials. He always insists that we have a second channel on if we're watching live TV. But even in general, I tend to mute commercials and we tend to talk over them. You know, but living in a full bubble is hard. Like I'm going to see ads on the subway when I ride in New York and I'm going to see things on Instagram, not even Instagram ads, but like I saw an IGTV the other day on Instagram that was a hair tutorial. And I keep being asked to do a hair tutorial, which I will do. And um, I, so I paused to watch this girl's. People keep being like, how do you do your hair? I don't know how to curl my hair. So I watched this girl and she's like, oh, this curling iron, guys, you will never go back once you have this curling iron. And I had just ordered a second curling iron for our Mexico trip because my last one broke and as I say in my packing video, I have a second set of everything. So I just ordered the exact same curling iron I have. It's like 30 bucks from Amazon. And I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I should return that curling iron when it comes and get this better one. So I go over to her website and I click through and I'm looking at the size. I even go and measure my curling iron. What, what inch barrel do I use? Okay, so it looks like a one inch, right? I'm looking at the one inch. And then, it, I mean, I'm spending, you know, a good five to 10 minutes on this. Plus, I'm thinking about it while I'm watching the video. So it's maybe 15 freaking minutes of my day that I'm thinking about a curling iron. And I'm looking it on Amazon and I start reading other reviews that are like, this wasn't that good, da 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 da. And it kind of like snaps me out of my trance that I'm in. And I'm like, wait a minute. P my hair is already good. <laughs> my hair is already good with the $30 curling iron that I have. The peoples of Instagram want to know how I'm doing my hair. I'm not having a problem with my hair. Why do I need a curling iron that is three times more expensive? And yet I am susceptible. And this girl, she wasn't, it wasn't an ad. She's just trying to be helpful like I am. People are asking her how she does her hair. She's trying to help the people. And before you know it, I'm about to drop three times as much on a curling iron that when I actually look into it, plenty of people on Amazon say is just the same. Another girl, she posted the face cloths that she had um, bought to dry, wash her face off at night. And they were a color and I have white ones. And I was like, you know, maybe if I had color ones, they wouldn't show as much dirt. And I thought, you know what, though, the white ones, though, I can see if I've gotten the makeup off. But do I really use that? I'm sitting there for five minutes waffling over this decision. 
I finally save the link and add it to my to-do list to be like, you know what? I'm going to come back to this later. And then finally that day, another it hits me when I go to wash my face. These cloths are perfectly fine. Why did I let myself think that I needed new face cloths? These cloths are fine. <laughs> and I go back and I check it off my list. I'm like, I don't need a newer version of this. But I realize that even though I shop less than the average person, I believe, I think as a stylist, I think as a blogger, as an influencer, I think for someone of my financial category, I shop less. I actually would would be willing to say, I think I buy less than the average human who isn't coming from a place of, I legit absolutely can't afford that. And yet, I can see how easily I get sucked into this stuff. And I get asked all the time where I get stuff. Anything I post, I and I said this to a friend. I had um, my old business partner taught a class for our mastermind one time, and he mentioned something in his life, and people were like, "How do you have that?" And I knew that he like kind of didn't know how to explain, like, how did he find this mentor or whatever. And I said to him afterwards, "Okay, I realized something that I've learned over the years that you haven't learned yet. If you have it, they want it. I know anything I tell you guys or show you guys that I have." you're going to want to know where I got it, which is totally fine. It doesn't matter whether it's my travel steamer or my curling iron or my shoes or my dress or my couch or my desk. Somebody wants to know exactly where I got it. So number one, I don't chop that often. Uh, Normal bloggers do. Normal bloggers are making their money by getting you to buy stuff. So they buy the stuff or maybe they don't even buy it. Maybe they just try it on and put a link, a swipe up link on there. But they, they buy the stuff because then you will buy the stuff because it's available in the store right now. Because that's not my business model or my joy or my life. I just have a really, I don't have time to shop that much because I run a business. Um, I don't have the link for you. So I get asked all the time, where did you get that? And I'm like, well, I mean, I got it two years ago from anthropology. So it doesn't really help you telling you that I got it from anthropology because you're not going to be able to go find it. Number two, I don't, I, I do see the value in the ease of shopping time. Like I can definitely appreciate that. I I had a photo that I saw on Pinterest that I wanted to put above my bed in my last apartment. And I kid you not, I spent a year. I spent hours upon hours upon hours looking for that dang photo. It was a, a, a tuxedo and a cocktail glass. And I'm looking up like Frank Sinatra photos, Vegas photos. I, I wasn't trying to even find that exact one. I was just trying to find something like it. If I had had a link to that, I mean, it legit would have saved me hours of my life. And ultimately, when I found the photo, it turned out it was the exact one that I had um, that I had seen. I didn't even realize until after I bought it. So I may start doing more of that. Um, I just have not had the time to, but I do hear your desire for it. And if I have found something that I like, I can see that it's so much easier to, to, to not have the overwhelm of, of all the stores on the internet that I could go shop to find this thing. Could you just tell me where you got yours because it's cute and I don't really need to spend the more, that more time. So this is not to say that all the bloggers that are doing this are doing this purely to promote these junk values. I do see the value in it. I was going to spend the money on a photo to go above my bed. If somebody could have saved me 24 hours of my life in Pinterest and Etsy and Google hunting, that would have been amazing. And I would have spent the exact same amount of money. But number three, I always want to balance it with the reminder that you don't need a new thing. Instead, let me teach you with what you already have. That is my huge message as a stylist and a style expert. My style students will get compliments left and right when they go through my style and stylability class. 
They have such increased joy. They end up having these radical life changes that they make from it in largely the exact same clothes they had when they started the class. Maybe they bought a couple of extra things, accessories, whatever. But no one is throwing out their entire closet and starting again. 90% of their closet is exactly the same as it was. They're at the same size they were, the same weight they were. They have the same wrinkles that they had. The outside of, of, of all of that hasn't changed. They haven't had to buy more. It really was that I just taught them how to better use it in the body and the closet that they already have. So I ask you not to shop when you're taking my class. I teach that you can get a dopamine hit from creating new things instead of buying. And we can retrain our brains to desire that same dopamine, that same little rush without having to spend more, buy more, put more things in the planet, be more of a consumer, whatever. Um, In my closet organizing, which you can watch on my IGTV, that for me is all about helping you find newness in your closet to pattern interrupt. We wear 20% of our clothes 80% of the time. So when you use my ribbon and re- ribbon and record method, you get through that 20% and then you realize, oh, uh, here's the rest of the 80% of my closet that I haven't been wearing. Why have I not been wearing this? Oh, that top is cute. I haven't thought about that. Why didn't? I, why have I not been wearing this? And so you, you're able to find that newness in the things you've already invested in without having to buy new stuff. So I would say to me, 10% of my value is what I've bought and giving you the link exactly to that. And 90% is why or how. How I'm using it. How I'm repurposing it. How it's making me feel beautiful. How it's bringing me joy. Why it is flattering to me. Why people find it attractive. So, you know, I'll say, here's the class I took on business every once in a while. Like, here's the exact link or recommendation for that. But I more so want to teach you why it's important to invest in that. How it really changed. How you can picture business and how you can understand the value of needing to invest in your business. And because I've seen that and I teach it and I live it, that's why I don't shop that often and I don't struggle quite as much, I believe, with that urge to always buy more, but I still realize that I could grow even healthier. And my most prevalent example of this is many years ago before, right about, I think, when I was launching Dean Street for the first year, I did a show in upstate New York, middle of nowhere, one of my last musical theater performances, and I'm just... I'm in the Adirondacks. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Um, It's all gay men in the cast and me and a couple of like older women who are working, you know, behind the scenes in the theater. Um, And I've got a handful of sundresses. It's ridiculously hot. I'm wearing no makeup and my hair up in a bun every day. The same five little sundresses that touch my body the least. I we have spotty internet. This is before Instagram, I think, is really a thing. I'm rarely online. I'm reading books. We're doing puzzles. We're going for walks. We're swimming in the lake. And it never occurred to me to want to buy new clothes. There's no ball. There's no shopping. There's no place to get anything. And I'm in this little town. The little tiny Forever 21 dresses I have are honestly cuter than what most of the people around here are wearing. So I'm not really even thinking about it. And I distinctly remember getting off the train at Penn Station when I arrived back in New York and instantly being aware it was almost like this sugar craving for new beautiful things. I remember it hit me like an assault of my senses. Like, oh, those are cute shoes. Oh, I like her skirt. Oh, I like that bag. Oh, look how pretty that advertisement is. And I was so conscious of like 
wow, I just thought about shopping and buying new things and having fresh new aesthetic experiences for the first time in two months because I haven't been around it. And it was the only time in my life I've had an experience like that. And it really has stayed with me all these years later to speak to this idea of we have more stuff around us than we realize just by being online, just by existing in the world, just by, you know, watching the news or scrolling the news or whatever it is. And most of the causes in this book of depression are the absence of something, the absence of meaningful work or meaningful friendships or a connection with nature. Whereas this one is a bit unique in that it's about the presence of something, the presence in our culture of these messages that are intrinsically making us less happy. But suppressing that doesn't work. If we just try to tell ourselves, oh, well, I will just not care about those things. I think about this a lot as someone who explores what makes women feel beautiful when it comes to our beauty. I think that we can get the message in culture that's like, just rage against the patriarchy, you know, shake your fist at the sky. How dare you tell us on the halftime show that we should be sexualized and shake our hips like, you know, just no, we don't want to do that. Like, okay, but but you still do want to feel beautiful. So just suppressing the desire, like culture is trying to tell me that I should want to be thin and I do not. You do though, if you're being honest. Culture is trying to tell me that I should want to look younger and I do not. I mean, I think most of the women in my life do, right? Like, so I believe that it is intrinsic to us as women, that we desire to feel beautiful, to feel captivating. I believe that it is in our survival instinct because the way that you would survive is you would find a mate who would go out and hunt the bear for you and bring you home meat so that you could eat. And you would would be attractive to this mate so that they would want to have sex with you. And then you would procreate to create some children who would help you till the farm so that you have this corn from which you can eat. It's the same way that men have an inherent desire to be strong, to be capable enough Because the only way they could survive is if they would go out and kill the bear so that they could eat. And if they could be found attractive to the woman, so she would want to have sex with him so that they could have a baby who would then be able to help them on the farm and take care of them in their old age. Like, it really does go back to this very tale as old as time, basic, basic tribal mentality of how do we survive in the world? That's what this stuff comes down to. So it's not that culture is telling you you want to feel beautiful and you don't. I believe personally that you do want to feel beautiful. Now, yes, culture may be telling us that that is to be thin and other times in culture to be very curvy and round said that you were wealthy and you had a lot of food that you could eat. And to be thin meant that you did not have a lot of money and a lot of food and you are of a lower class. So yes, culturally, we're being told that thin is is the thing. And I'm sure there's other cultures where we prized, you know, age for their wisdom. And yes, we traditionally live in cultures that, you know, prize us to be young. But I do want to point out that there is something in between there, that, the, that there are things that the marketing is marketing to us. And we do care about that. We do care about being beautiful. We 
do care about having relationships and being happy. So, you know, that the K Jewelers commercial that's telling you about how you should, you know, your boyfriend should buy you something for Valentine's Day. I mean, it's speaking to a legitimate core value of connection and and love and being seen and being thought of. You just happen to be marketed that jewelry would be the way to do that. But it isn't purely about let us suppress and try to have none of these urges and desires. I think instead it is being aware, cultivating a vision of how you can Look at and notice your thoughts and actions, your head and your heart, your desires, and readjust those towards values that do bring you meaning and be able to separate out that I can want to feel beautiful without also having a desire to constantly buy new clothes. But it's not about squashing the desire and saying that it's silly or it's frivolous or it's vain or I shouldn't care. And to me, those tend to be the two messages in culture. Either we like throw it all away and we're like, ugh, Valentine's Day, we shouldn't need a man to fulfill us and da-da-da-da-da. Or everybody focus on all the stuff that people should buy, buy you on Valentine's Day. To me, the truth is in the middle. We desire human connection. And this holiday may celebrate it, it may highlight it, it may bring out the absence of it, but ultimately that desire is still there. Let's just look at, am I allowing Valentine's Day to, you know, put too much importance on it or the way that my partner shows me love on Valentine's Day, what whatnot. But I admit that it is an uphill battle against culture. <laughs> it is not easy to let go of those things. If culture is telling us be thin, if culture is telling us be young, if culture is telling us this is societally beautiful... It's an uphill battle. There are not easy answers. I am here for it. Nonetheless, we are making progress in my course. It is why I'm writing my book because I see the value that that course has had on women. It is why I teach what I do on Instagram. But it also really compels me that it is this bigger thing. It really is all of us together with bigger shifts to truly heal one another because I can work on my own desire to not see more clothes as my answer to more happiness. But that's just me. How can I make that more true for all women? Well, in my case, I'm very blessed to have a platform, to have this podcast, to have my Instagram and a course and a book. But I'm curious for all of us, back to this very core concept that it is not that depression is an isolated thing. I take care of me and Sarah, you take care of you and Julie, you're on your own over there and Sarah, you figure out what your issues are. It's girls, guys, we're, we're all struggling with the same thing. So I'm going to work on my mindset. I'm going to take ownership over myself. But also, like, as my sister's keeper, as someone who loves all of you guys, I'm not just going to stop at that. I'm going to be like, what could we all do together to shift this and make ourselves happier? So when he talks about a reconnection to meaningful values, he mentions that when there is pollution in the air – that makes us feel worse, we ban the source of pollution. We don't allow factories to pump lead into our air. And advertising is a form of mental pollution. In Sao Paulo, Brazil, for example, they were seeing that every possible space in the city was slowly being smothered by billboards. So in 2007, they took the bold step and banned all outdoor advertising. Everything. They called it the clean city law. In Sweden and Greece, they have banned advertising directed at children. He says, it made me think, imagine if we had a tough advertising regulator who wouldn't permit ads designed to make us feel bad in any way. 
how many ads would survive? That's an achievable goal, and it would clear a lot of mental pollution from our minds. Now, it didn't even occur to me that this was really possible. Like, it's never occurred to me, could we regulate the amount of marketing that we see? Could we make some rules around where we can be marketed to and who we can market to, like some children or how we can market? I definitely notice when it pops up more. I'll point that out to Jeremy. We'll be on a subway platform and I'll say, hey, that like sign over there, they, they made that um, electronic now. That used to just be like an ad for the subway or something last year. And now it's an electronic thing that scrolls ads. And so when you're standing for the subway, it isn't just the, the plastered ads that you're seeing on signs. You're also seeing a, a TV screen that's giving you ads. And I'm like, oh, that's new. I notice those things. I notice more of it pops up. But I'll be honest, it just makes me curious. I'm like, huh, are, I mean, I don't know. How would we do that? How, how would I, Hillary, have anything to do with that? And I guess, well, now I'm curious. Are any of the lawmakers that are running for election in my neighborhood or county or state talking about this? I mean, maybe that's worth looking into. It's not something that's really been on my radar before, but could I just look into it and maybe, you know, use my vote, my one little tiny part of the world? Could I maybe talk to my friends about it who are here in my community who are also voting for those local county boards to realize, you know, if you guys ever thought about the fact that we actually could make a law against this? I just thought that was really fascinating that, again, it comes back to helping the whole and taking a fresh look at our own lives. And is there anything that we could shift? Maybe there's things that we are accepting as normal. And then you read about another city or state that's doing something, another country, and you're like, wait, Sweden and Greece on an advertising directed towards children? How many commercials are my niece and nephew being served about that same lump of plastic that would make them want to spend time with another mean little girl or boy just because they had the lump of plastic? And if they're spending time with a meaner little girl or boy at five years old, does that make them a meaner little girl or boy as they grow up? Like suddenly I'm like, gosh, why have I not thought of this? I'm feeling a little curious to pay attention to the laws around me. And we know that we don't want to be materialistic. I would imagine you would say that you are not materialistic. But when you read through the examples in this book, the causes and the sources, you realize the little things that pop up in your mind. Yeah, I wonder if while I'm filming an episode of the podcast, it's occurring to me whether or not it's good enough. And, you know, I watched that IGTV and then I was down the rabbit hole looking for curling iron. Like, ye gads, this is me. <laughs> I am suffering from the same thing that if you just told me that I was materialistic and had junk values, I'd be like, you're sorely mistaken. I absolutely do not. And I think that noticing, again, that 3% shift, noticing just 3% of our thoughts is the first step to change. And advocating is the first step to change. This isn't a political cry for anti-advertising, but it just makes me think, you know, working on my mind is about me. But what about everyone else? Depression and anxiety has been a your problem. It's my thing I'm working on. It's individual. It's isolated. But if it's ours, if we're all struggling from this, then loving our neighbor means that working on my mind alone isn't enough. And I found that very convicting. And for me, this is my work in the world, my book, my whole mission, but without it being your full-time job, maybe it's laws, 
that you know, the, the people that you are voting for to elect, maybe you work in advertising and you can rethink the messages that you're putting out. And is this making someone feel bad about themselves or is it making someone feel good about themselves? Could we just do a different take on this to still sell the same product? Or maybe you host a book club and you read this book and you have a conversation with your friends. Like whatever it is, I'd like to invite us to consider how could I move this forward a bit for the people around me? How can I both take individual ownership over my own thoughts? And how can I also think about what it would mean to shift the emphasis of marketing, the emphasis of junk values? Am I bringing it up in my conversations? Am I talking about the amount of money that I want to make or the goals that I want to achieve? And may I, maybe I need to realize that is promoting to my friends an extrinsic value. Maybe it's just simply in the conversations that we're having and the conversations that we're having in front of our children. So next week, we're going to talk about another cause for ourselves and for one another and what we might do about it. And I hope that we go forward feeling inspired and encouraged and empowered that Depression and anxiety is not something purely that happens to us that we can't control or that therapy or medication is our only answer for it, but we can look at the other causes in our everyday life that even if we don't associate with being depressed or anxious, we can acknowledge there is some happiness, there is some peace that's being stolen, and I want the three-degree shift in the direction of getting it back and feeling more reconnected with what truly matters most. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm legit loving lately is post-it notes. Those little squares of paper that you see. A little glue adds such value to me. I use them all throughout my life to pay them honors only nice post-it notes. I'm using them to write my book. And remember my keys when I leave the door. My husband says he loves me there. This key's getting a little high. And leaves it on my desk for finding. Guys, post-it notes. I don't mean to sound like Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, which is a movie I'm honestly not even sure I've seen, but I just know that post-it notes is in it and it's got the girl from Friends. But I just started to think, How much does a tiny little thing like post-it notes bless my life? I am laying out my book, as you have seen here in Mexico, on post-it notes. I first started laying my book out two years ago on these post-it notes. They lived in my office when I had an office. They have traveled with me to Paris where they never came out of my bag, but I thought I was going to work on writing my book there. They have then gone on my wall in my office in New York. Um, I have not used them since I moved into that home office uh, eight months ago. Still haven't written the book. I've now brought them to Mexico and they are back out and they are finally getting their life in the world. I texted two of my girlfriends who are authors as I was getting back into the flow of things to chat about how they do books. Both of them all about the post-it notes. My girlfriend, Allie Worthington. Oh, guys, it's so good. She has a um, she has a giant poster board that she carries around her house based on where she wants to work that day. And it's got all her post-it notes and and note cards up there where she can see the layout of her book at all times. I mean, I just, oh, I love fellow nerds. And I realized, Jeremy and I use this to remember things. I'll see a little note from him that says, like, take your lunch or whatever it was that he wants to make sure he doesn't forget. Um, 
I will put pattern interrupts on my mirror if I'm wanting to remember things or I'm wanting to kind of work on my mindset. I'm wanting to work on what I call one of my anchoring phrases that I kind of go back to to remember. It's a huge thing in our relationship. Jeremy writes me love notes. He started doing it when we were first dating that he'd just be like, I love you. I hope you have a great day. Like thinking of you, whatever. And he would just pot them inside my laptop to find when I opened them up or on the mirror if he'd left in the morning or Hide, you know, on my computer in my office so I'd see it when I went in there. Actually, my something blue from our wedding, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, was a blue post-it note in which he'd written, I love you, Jay. And I put it inside my uh, vintage purse that was my something old that I was carrying um, as my something blue that was personal. Uh, I have post-it notes all throughout this book, Lost Connections, that we've been talking about like a dork you may have seen a few weeks ago when I posted on Instagram the deep diving that I was doing. So, I mean, I would just like to raise a glass to the inventor of post-it notes. And as we are talking about finding more joy and value, the fact that I am finding that in a very inexpensive purchase that really gives me a lot of joy and value in my life. And speaking of raising a glass, I would raise one to you, my friend, if you would be so kind as to swipe up and take just 60 seconds to leave a review of this podcast. If you feel that the content here is indeed helping people move past their depression, move past their anxiety, is about meaningful values, is about how we explore what truly makes us feel beautiful. If you feel that this would bless the mental health and encouragement an inspiration of someone else out there on the internet, this is the way that you can pay it forward and leave a little virtual post-it note of your own that tells a future stranger that comes along, wow, 800-something other people have said that this is worth paying attention to. And that's the only thing they have to go off of is a cute uh, little cover art thing of, of what my podcast looks like, the titles of the episodes, and glancing at how many people have left a review. It's the num- one of the number one things that lets people know that what we're doing here is of value. So if it is of value, I would be so appreciated if you would do this and if you have already done it, then you get two glasses of champagne to cheers with. And for everyone else, here is a little encouragement to take that extra action step. It would be super nice if you liked my aunt's podcast because I think you're super nice. If you like it, you give it five stars. She works so hard on it. So spread the love and make a review. next Wednesday.